Good morning, church. Go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. The title of this sermon is United Around God's Mission. And once you're at Romans chapter 16, if you're physically able to stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. And I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. All right. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes this, Paul the Apostle. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Cenchreae. So you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matter she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. Give my greetings to Prisca and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Greet also the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend Eponidas, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, and they were also in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those who belong to the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have worked hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nerus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send you greetings. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord, for just giving us our complete Bibles. We thank you for granting we who believe. You've granted us salvation. You've granted us the gift of illumination. And we pray that you would help us as you illuminate the text again this morning, God, that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts to receive what is in your word. Lord, that you would remove me as much as possible so that I don't mess your word up. We pray, God, that those who don't know you by the power of your word will be saved this morning. We pray that those who do know you will be conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus. And we pray in everything that you would be glorified. And so it's all in Jesus, our Lord's name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. So after reading the text, I figure you might be thinking, how in the world is he going to get a sermon out of this? I mean, it's a list of 26 names, so we might as well just pray and call it a day, right? No. <laughs> you know, truth be told, a lot of preachers like to avoid texts like this, specifically Romans 16, because they're not sure what to do with it, okay? Uh, Again, a greeting of 26 people. But we must not discount a text like this too quickly because even this text is part of the all scripture that's breathed out by God. And so I want us to read that passage about scripture so that we could understand what we're supposed to get out of this scripture. So if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes there, he says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
So not only does that passage tell us what Scripture is, it's God's Word breathed out to us, but it also tells us what God's Word does to us, right? It does four things, according to that verse. It teaches, it rebukes, it corrects, and it trains for righteousness. Now, these four things collectively make us complete. They equip us for every good work. So if we really believe what that verse says, then even Paul telling the Romans to greet 26 names is part of the all scripture that does these four things. So again, as a preacher, I have to ask myself, do I really believe this? Do I believe this about a passage like this? And if so, then I can't skip this passage. I have to study it carefully and see how it teaches, how it rebukes, how it corrects, and how it trains for righteousness. And I dare say, whenever you're reading the scripture, look for how it does those four things. Okay, that's what you're looking for. Now, Mark Dever neatly divides these four things into two things. In other words, the first two have to do with what we believe and think, and then the second two have to do with how we live or what we do. Okay, so the first two, the word teaches us positively what we're supposed to believe and think, and it rebukes us when we believe the wrong things, right? And calls us to believe the right things. Then the second two things, it corrects the way we live. It corrects us in the sinful things that we do wrong, but then in contrast, trains us in righteousness, which is living in a way that is right in the eyes of God. So my point is, this passage that I opened with this morning, it has to do all of this. It does. It's God's word. And so the question for us is, does it do this? How does it do it? And the answer is yes, and I'll I'll show you how. So let me first just give you the point of the text. The point of the text is this. The mission of the church maintains the unity of the church. The mission of the church maintains the unity of the church. And yes, I get it. Right now, you're probably thinking, how in the world am I getting that out of this list of 26 names? And my answer is, I'm getting that from the 26 names. And you might be like, what? Like, how does this list of greetings demonstrate that the mission of the church maintains the unity of the church? Well, you have to pay attention to what Paul says about each person. You have to pay attention to the details of each person. What are their names? What does that tell you about them? What's their gender? What's their social class? Are they immigrants? Are they native-born? Are they Jew? Are they Gentile? All that plays into this. And when we look closely at these 26 people and what Paul is saying about them, it's going to yield a lot of important stuff that will teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in the right way of life. So we're going to get into it. But before we get into it, let me first quickly say we really are at the end of the book now. Okay, We're we're almost there. This is likely my second to last sermon in the book of Romans. Then I'm going to have to figure something else out after Romans. But, but the fact is, Paul is listing these people because he is ending this letter. So he's throwing these greetings out there. This is what he does at the end of all of his letters, though it's most extreme in Romans because of how many people he's mentioning. And there's a reason why this list is so big. You have to remember what we've already seen in Romans so far. Okay? He has never been to Rome yet. Okay? The majority of the people in the church of Rome are unknown to him personally, but he wants their help in getting him to Spain as a missionary, right? To, to do mission work in Spain. He needs the Roman church to be the one that supports that ministry. So it only helps his case to show this church that he already knows a lot of the solid people that are part of that church. That means they could vouch for him, especially since he's putting them out there by name. It means that he's not a complete stranger to the church. 
And when we get to the end of the list, those are people likely that he's never met, but he's heard of them. And that's why he mentions them, because they have a good reputation. And in part, by him doing that, they may do the same for him. And so there's a reason why this list is so big. Anyway, with all that said, we could look at these greetings and we could see what we could discern. For the sake of those who take notes, I'm breaking it up into two parts. Verses 1 and 2 is kind of different than the rest. Verses 1 and 2, he's commending a single person that he sends to them. Then for the rest of the text, verses 3 through 16, he's greeting people who are already over there in the church of Rome. Okay, And he's going to say, you should greet all these worthy people. So with that, let's get into it. Let's start first with Paul commending the person he sent, a person named Phoebe. Look at verse 1. In verse 1, Paul writes this. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Cancrae. So again, simple statement, but what's going on here? Well, let me ask a couple questions. Simply put, how do you think the Roman church got their hands on the letter to the Romans? Did Paul email it to them? Did he text message it? U.S. Postal Service? FedEx? No, those things didn't exist back then. If he wanted to get this letter to the audience, he had to send it with an actual person he knows. He had to put it in their hand, and they had to deliver it themselves. Now, if you step back into the first century, they didn't have paper stores or printers or copy machines. They had expensive scrolls, long scrolls that you had to slowly write everything out on. And those scrolls were expensive. They were not cheap. Okay, And so the reason I'm saying all that is Paul likely only wrote one copy of the book of Romans. Okay, One scroll wrote it all out, or actually had Tertius write a lot of it out as he was dictating it to him, and we'll get to that next time. But Paul's masterpiece was likely written on just one scroll. If this important book were to survive, it had to get to its audience. So, with all that in mind, what does that tell you about the person that Paul entrusted this letter to? Is this person, like, unreliable? Are they a rapscallion? No, that's a fun word to say. Knowing how important the unity of the Roman church is and how important the mission to Spain will be, what does it tell you about the person he handed the scroll to to deliver it? It tells you he trusted this person. He trusted this person a lot. Well, Phoebe is the one who delivered this letter to the Roman church in the city of Rome. Paul wrote the letter when he was spending the winter in the city of Corinth. Ken Crye, which he mentions she's from, was a smaller port city walking distance from Corinth. So if you lived in the city of Corinth and you wanted to catch a ship, you would do it at the port city of Ken Crye. It's kind of like if you live in Victorville, you're going to catch a flight in Ontario, right? Same, same exact kind of thing. Now, the book of Acts does not tell us that Paul planted a church in Ken Crye. Instead, he planted a church in Corinth, and he spent a year and a half there. He built that church up to maturity before he left started to get immature after he left. But when he was there, he raised up pastors. Those pastors could raise up pastors. He could then leave. And then that church sent disciples to plant churches in nearby towns. And one of them was Kenkrae. That's how you end up with the church there. And so Phoebe was from there. Now, given that Paul was spending the winter in Corinth, which is close to Kenkrae, he's going to have regular contact with them. And given that whoever takes this letter is going to be taking it out from that port city, it makes sense that he's going to ask Phoebe to be the one to deliver this. Now, another thing we need to understand is that travel back then was really dangerous. To get to Rome, she would have to go some of the way by sea. Now, look, they weren't 
on these big cruise ships back then. Shipwrecks happened all the time. In fact, Paul, by this point of his life, had been shipwrecked three times, and he's going to get shipwrecked a fourth time later. Okay? Not only that, you had a lot of pirates, not Johnny Depp pirates, but ancient pirates. Okay? And the Roman Navy was not able to, to really stop these guys. So travel by sea was not safe. But let's say your ship reaches its destination, then she would have to go the rest of the way on foot. And so on the roads, you always had to watch out for robbers and other violent folks. And yeah, we have it so good. We jump in a car, we drive a day's distance, and then there's always a hotel or a motel that's safe to stop at. Not back then. You had to find somewhere on the side of the road to sleep. And when you got to a major city, there would be an inn and a tavern, but you would not sleep there because it was more dangerous than sleeping on the street. The people who went to the taverns were not your kind of people. Let's just put it that way. Okay? So this was very dangerous. So again, that tells you about the level of trust that Paul had in this woman, Phoebe. And what's interesting is he had no problem in trusting this dangerous and super important mission to a woman. And I can't emphasize that point enough. I think sometimes we confuse our own cultural Christian traditions we, we, we let them dictate to us what a man or woman cannot do, and sometimes we are wrong about that. Now, some of our traditions, a lot of them are right. They are derived from the Bible, but sometimes we get it wrong. The fact is, Paul had no problem in trusting this super important and very dangerous mission to a woman. Okay, That's just one thing we should keep in our mind. Now, we know the, the, the reason we know the letter is going by the hand of Phoebe to the Romans is because in Paul's letters, always at the end of the letter, he commends the people he sends to them. Well, those are the people he mentions in the letter. He tells them, hey, commend this person. Take care of this person. How would they know unless they open the letter? How did that person get there? With the letter, okay? So nobody really doubts or disputes that the people that Paul mentions at the end of the letter to tell them, hey, take care of these guys, are the people he sent the letter with. So in that case, it is Phoebe, okay? And so, yeah, nothing too crazy there. Now, there's one more thing I want to pull out from verse 1 that we need to talk about, then we'll go to verse 2. And this thing from verse 1 is controversial to some people. It says, Paul says that Phoebe, quote, is a servant of the church in Kenkrei, okay? Now, you might wonder why this is controversial, There's a lot of debate about it, and it centers on this word servant. This word servant is the word diakonos, which is the word for deacon, okay? And so the question is, is he saying Phoebe's a deacon of the church of Kenkrae, right? Now, this word diakonos does not always mean deacon. Sometimes it just means someone who serves. In chapter 13, Paul said the government is God's diakonos for good. I don't think anybody thinks The government is God's deacon in the church, right? Sometimes Paul will use this word of his own service, but we know he wasn't a deacon. He was an apostle and a pastor, right? So when he would use this word of himself, it just means one who serves. But the question for us is what does he mean here? Is he saying that Phoebe was just a good servant or is he saying she was a deaconess? And before I go on, there's actually no word for deaconess, right? You know, Greek like Spanish, had words that were masculine and feminine. And Greek also had a third one, neuter. A lot of words had versions all three ways. Some words didn't. Diakonos only had a masculine version. So if a woman was a deacon, you would just call her a deacon. You wouldn't call her a deaconess. 
That word wasn't invented till later. And so I just say that because somebody might look it up and say, well, it doesn't say deaconess. It wouldn't have, okay? If she was a deaconess, they would have called her a deacon. So again, we come back to the original question. Was she a deacon? And if so, would this be controversial? Let me take these two questions in order. She probably was a deacon. I was like, gasp, okay? She probably was. And the reason why I say that is because the way Paul says this, it is attached to a church. She is not just a servant or one who serves. She is a servant of the church of Kenkrei. That is normally how, that is not normally how you would say someone serves in a general sense. That is how you would say they hold a position. They are this of X, Y, and Z church, okay? Now, of course, where you would want to go is you'd want to go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, where it gives the qualifications for deacons. And if you were to study it in the original language in the Greek, the best arguments are that it does authorize a second group of deacons that are women. Now, I don't have time to get into that now. I'm preaching Romans 16, not 1 Timothy chapter 3. But a few years back, I did a systematic theology lesson just on that passage, just on deacons, and you could go find it on sermon audio. I will give you the fast version, and this is all I could do right now. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul's laying out the offices. First, he lays out elders. And then when he goes to a new group, he starts with the word likewise. He says, likewise, deacons. And he goes down a little further and he says, likewise, women. And then gives a list of qualifications. Now, you might look it up and say, no, it says likewise, wives. In the Greek, wife and woman's the same word. Context lets you know whether or not it's a wife or a woman. Most scholars think it just should be women. So elders, these are your qualifications. Deacons, these are your qualifications. Likewise, deacons. And then likewise, women who serve in the same way, these are your qualifications. And I'll leave it there. If you want more detail, that systematic theology lesson is just for you. Okay? So this is something that, that seems to be in the New Testament. The way Paul words it here of Phoebe seems to be the case. And so, yes, she probably was a deacon. The second question is whether or not this is controversial. Well, it wasn't back then, because the church fathers for the first few centuries wrote about female deacons um, without any controversy. They didn't seem to think anything of it. And it makes sense that it wasn't controversial, because the office of deacon, as it is described in the New Testament, is not an office of authority. It does not have authority. It's an office of service. Deacons serve people in an exceptional way. They don't rule the church. They don't have authority in the church. They don't have the role of teaching. Now, a deacon can teach, but that teaching is separate from their office of deacon because the deacon office has nothing to do with teaching. It has to do with service, okay? And so the point is the Bible has no problem with women serving in exceptional ways, as we will see as we get further into this text. So if a deacon is an office that simply represents exceptional service, then it should not be controversial that a woman would be a deacon. And again, they were for the longest time. And so the reason why this is controversial today is because some Baptist churches, and we're Baptists, but we're not like these ones, some Baptist churches have wrongly defined the office of deacon. They made the deacons the rulers of the churches. So the, the, the deacon board is in charge of the budget. They hire and fire pastors. They determine what will be taught, who's going to lead certain ministries, and so forth. Okay, that is not how the Bible describes deacons. That's how the Bible describes pastors or elders. Okay, so if you have a church, because there's a lot of them, if you have a church where the deacons actually rule, 
then yeah, if you made a woman a deacon, it would be controversial because you would be giving her authority over men. And you might say, what's wrong with that in a church setting? Well, 1 Timothy 2.12 seems to not allow that. Paul says this, 1 Timothy 2.12. He says, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Now, you have to understand, that passage is in the context of the church as a whole. It's not an absolute prohibition in every circumstance, which I will prove in a little while. But in the context of the church, women are not to have the teaching role and authority role over men. That is what he says. And people do all sorts of weird things to try to make that verse disappear, but you can't. Okay? Now, right after Paul says that in 1 Timothy 2, he then rolls into the qualifications of pastors and elders who do teach and have authority in chapter 3. And he makes it clear they must be men, husbands of one wife, managing their households well, all that kind of stuff, right? All the, the, the pronouns are masculine in that, in that section about um, the qualifications for the leaders of the church, okay? So bottom line is from the standpoint of church leadership in the church gathering, women are not supposed to teach an audience of men or rule and have authority over them. And this isn't because God is a meanie, it's because he's made us differently. It's called complementarianism. Men and women are both equally made in the image of God but we are made different to have different roles. And when we carry out our roles, they complement each other rather than bump up against each other, right? And so it's just simple, simple biblical teaching there. Now, outside of the church, there are many examples of of women teaching men. Women can preach the gospel to unsaved men. If you tell a woman you're sinning when you're evangelizing, you're sinning by telling her she's sinning when she's evangelizing. That's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard, but some people will say it. If a Christian woman sees a man who says he's a Christian committing sin, she could go up to him with the scripture and say, you are in sin, and show him how and why. And that's teaching, and that's okay, because that's not what Paul's talking about here. So my point is this. Paul's issue there is in the context of the gathered church. And so if a church wrongly defines their deacons as if they were elders, like a lot of churches do, then yeah, women can't be deacons in those churches. But those churches already have it wrong, okay? In a church that has it right, where the elders are the ones who rule, elders slash pastors, same thing, and then the deacons are exceptional servants, then there's no reason why qualified women could not serve as deaconesses. Okay, so with that controversy aside, let's finish up on Phoebe. We should go faster through her, but there's two big controversies that liberals like to to do with this. So anyway, let's look at verse 2. Paul says, so you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever manner she may require your help. For indeed, she's been a benefactor of me, or I mean of many, and of me also. Okay, so the first sentence there is straightforward. He's saying, look, you guys are Christians. She's delivered this letter to you at great risk. Take care of her. Please take care of her. You know, as I said, the inns and the taverns, they weren't safe. So Paul's saying, put her up in a home. Make sure she's got food and water and everything else she needs. He says this is to be done, quote, in a manner worthy of the saints, end quote. And that's an important way to lay this on them, right? Because the word saint means holy one. If you are in Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ has made you holy, clean, and set apart. And then, so the second person of the Trinity cleanses you of your sin, makes you holy. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And so that makes you a holy one. And who's the ultimate holy one? God. We're to be holy because God is holy. 
Well, God, in his holiness, shows us perfect hospitality. He gives us everything we need. He invites us into fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if he has that kind of hospitality towards us, we need to be hospitable towards others. And so Paul is saying, take care of this woman. And he doesn't just limit it to food and shelter. He says, help her, quote, in whatever matter she may require your help. In other words, in other words he's saying, I want you to treat this woman with great honor. Nothing controversial there. But the second sentence creates a little bit of controversy because some people try to use it to make that 1 Timothy 2.12 passage disappear. Okay, and, 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 and what they focus on is the word benefactor. Paul says she was a benefactor of many and of me. Now, this word in Greek sometimes means a patron. A patron was a rich person in the ancient world who funded work of a client, but then they had authority over that client. They could tell them what to do. So what these people were trying to say is that Phoebe was Paul's superior, that she was his boss, that she could command him. And if she could tell an apostle what to do, well, then she could tell pastors what to do and she could be a pastor herself. But here's the problem. This word benefactor doesn't always mean that. In its most normal use, it just means somebody who supports your ministry financially. She was likely rich. Okay? The New Testament mentions a few women who were successful at business and therefore rich. Lydia was rich, Chloe, and likely Phoebe as well. Okay? That's why she could afford to travel to Rome. Right? That wasn't cheap. Okay? So she's one of these benefactors. And by Paul calling her that, he's simply saying that this woman has been super generous with her possessions to help me and other people who are spreading the gospel. And the reason why Paul's saying is this is obvious. I mean, if you look at the structure of what he just said, he's saying take care of her and whatever she needs. Why? Because she's taking care of me and whatever I've needed. That's the whole point he's bringing up this benefactor thing. Okay? He's saying she's been good to me. She's taking care of me. You guys need to take care of her. And so it's such a beautiful commendation from Paul. And it really stinks that people, especially from more feminist egalitarian backgrounds, try to turn this into an argument about power and authority in the church. They try to say that, well, she's a benefactor, and since she delivered the letter, that she would read the letter, she would explain the letter, and therefore she would be teaching men. And they do all this to make 1 Timothy 2.12 disappear. But notice how they do it. Does our passage say any of that stuff they said? Does it say that she's going to read it? Does it say she's going to explain it? Does it say she's going to have authority over men? No, that's all read into it. But 1 Timothy 2.12 directly says what it says, right? So they take this passage where they read a bunch of junk into it to delete the passage that says clearly what they don't like. That is not how you are supposed to treat Scripture. But anyway, with Paul's commendation of Phoebe, okay, kind of wrapping her up to then get to the next section, right, we see a couple important truths too. First, women served important functions in the church. You can't deny that. Let me ask you this. How many of you love the book of Romans? How many of you have grown from the book of Romans? How many of you have benefited from two years of going through Romans? The only reason Romans is in your Bible is because Phoebe faithfully delivered it to the church of Rome so that they can make copies of it. If she failed in her mission, we'd be going from Acts to 1 Corinthians. Okay? But the thing is, God in his sovereignty had her succeed, but it was Paul's faithfulness in writing it and Phoebe's faithfulness in delivering it that we're able to talk about this right now. And then the second thing is churches are supposed to hold in high esteem faithful servants, whether they be men or women. 
Too often is the case we'll elevate men who are great servants, but not so much the women. And that's not how it's supposed to be. Paul elevated this woman and held her up in high regard and told the church to do the same. Now, we're going to see a lot of this, some of these same things play out in the rest of the text, but in even greater ways when he uh, lists these 26 names for the purpose of greetings. So we turn to that next. And before we start on those, I just quickly want to point something out. Paul is not the one greeting them. He is telling the Roman church to greet these people. In fact, every time you see the word greet in the rest of this chapter, it is a command. It's in the imperative uh, mood. You greet these people. Why? Well, if the church was fighting over the stuff he mentioned in Romans 14, which they were, then what better way to start the healing than by having all the church members, after reading this letter, going and greeting each other. Going and greeting and saying, hey, how's it going? Good to see you. See, we're supposed to be in the habit of greeting each other all the time. And by the way, that requires face-to-face, which means digital church isn't a real thing. Face-to-face church is the real thing. We have our stream, not so you could replace this, but so if you're traveling or sick or are shut in or don't live here but you want to catch good teaching, you could do it that way. But church is in person, in the flesh, face-to-face. You can't greet the way Paul's telling them to greet, you know, through digital means. You can't, like texting and saying, what's up, is not the same. It just isn't the same. So face-to-face church is what binds people together. That's why Paul's saying, go say hi to each other. Greet these people. And he's going to give reasons to greet these people. So let's look at these commands to greet each other. Okay? My plan is to just quickly go over each person and say what we can know about them based on what Paul says. And then when the whole list is finished, I'll pull some big themes together that show us that the point of the text is the mission of the church is what maintains the unity of the church and how this text teaches us, rebukes us, corrects us, and trains us for righteousness. So it's important to get through the list first. Now, he begins in verses 3 and 4 with some really important people in the early church. He says, Give my greetings to Prisca and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Now, Prisca and Aquila, these were Paul's closest companions. He calls them co-workers here, meaning that a lot of what he did, he did with them. Now, I just want you to understand, Paul does not use this word co-worker for Christians in general. In fact, he withholds this word only for those who helped him in his great commission task of planting those churches for those 1,400 miles from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Only those people who were helping him in this way were his co-workers. And so he mentions Prisca and Aquila. He mentions them in other letters as well. He meets them for the first time in Acts chapter 18 in the city of Corinth. He was there to plant a church. They were there because Emperor Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome. And they and Paul were tent makers. So they decided to do business together. Turns out they were all Christians. So they helped Paul plant the church of Corinth. And then afterward, they helped Paul plant the church of Ephesus. Those were Paul's two biggest, most successful churches. Okay, And then at some point, Paul goes elsewhere. They go back to Rome. That's why he's saying greet them because they're there. But then when you fast forward to 2 Timothy, which he writes later, they're going to be back in Ephesus. So what that tells you is this is just a solid couple that serves the Lord where there is the need to serve the Lord. Now, Paul tells us about them that they, quote, risked their own necks for my life. The Bible doesn't tell us when or where that happened. But if you read the book of Acts, 
It does show us that people try to kill Paul everywhere he goes. Okay? And Priscilla or Prisca and Aquila were with him wherever he went in a lot of the cases. And so what it means is in one of those occasions, or maybe more than one of them, they actually put their own safety on the line to save his life. And that is what it means to be a co-worker in the Lord. It means we're in this together. It means we have each other's back. The worst thing is, is saying we're in it together and then you leave someone out there to die when you could help them. Well, they wouldn't do that for Paul even though he always had a target on his back. Now, what's interesting is Paul lists Prisca first. And just in case you're confused, this is Priscilla. Prisca's like a shortened nickname version of it, but her full name's Priscilla. That's what she's normally called. Um, But it's interesting that Paul lists her first before her husband. That is not an accident. Luke does the same thing in most cases in the book of Acts. Okay? And what we know about historical writings from this time is when you have a list of people or even just two people, the one who's listed first is the more prominent one. Think of all the gospels listings of the apostles who's always mentioned first. Peter, who ends up being the most prominent one in Acts. Peter, until you get to Paul. Okay, same thing. When, when you look at Paul's first missionary journey, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. And so for the first part of it, it kept saying Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. But at some point, Paul took the lead, and then it started saying Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, right? And so same thing here. It's always, almost always, okay? There's a couple cases where it's Aquila first, but in the vast majority, it's Priscilla and Aquila. Now, what that means is that she was more prominent than him in the church. It does not mean she was a pastor, like some people try to twist this. It doesn't even come close to meaning that. What it means is that her service to the Lord was more noteworthy than Aquila's. And listen, that should not be hard for us to grasp. I think all of us can think of married couples in Christ where the wife is more active in the church, and when the brothers think of the couple, the first one who pops in their head is the wife before the husband. I know people like that, and and, and it would be wrong to assume necessarily that it just means the man is failing to lead in the home. It might be she was given three talents by Christ and he was given one. And so her capacity to serve would be greater. I've seen cases where in the home, the husband is still the head of the house. He's still the one responsible for church discipleship. But then in the church, the woman's on fire because she just has more gifts. And the Holy Spirit can do that. It has nothing to do with authority. It has everything to do with service. So a husband being the leader in the home does not translate into the wife and church having a quiet, silent role while the husband's the visible one. It doesn't mean that, Okay. It does not mean that. We see examples like Priscilla and Aquila that speak against that. And again, this should help us question some of our traditional assumptions. Some people act like the church is a meeting where the male family heads assemble to do the work of the ministry while the women simply mind to the kids, that their involvement is only supposed to be children's ministry and discipling younger women. The Bible does not impose that limit. Yes, Titus chapter 2 tells the older women to disciple the younger women, and it tells the younger women to mind to their husbands and their kids and to manage the home well. And yes, they're supposed to do that. But that doesn't limit them to that. It doesn't say only do that. Okay? That's not where it stops for them. Okay? When you read all the lists of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, Romans 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Peter 3, when you read these gifts of the Holy Spirit, they are never gender-specific. In fact, in every gift that's mentioned, you could find examples in the scripture of both genders exercising those gifts. The only thing that's off limits is the office of pastor. 
And pastor's not a gift, it's an office. And it's an office that requires a lot of gifts coming together, okay? But as far as spiritual gifts, the Spirit doesn't segregate those things. Women have the gift of evangelizing, of teaching, of counseling, mercy, hospitality, generosity, and all the rest. A church where the women are all passive while the men do all the work, it's not a healthy church. In fact, think about how foolish it is to be limiting a church's ministry by 50% because we're benching half the people that the Holy Spirit gave gifts to. It just doesn't make any sense. And so you have these people who, instead of looking at the church as the church, they look at like the family as if it's the family priest model, where, where the husband is the priest who represents the family before God and before the church. And all the church is is nothing more than family heads coming together while the family priests do all the work and everybody else is in the background. The Bible never describes the church that way. It doesn't. We all have our own relationship with God, and we all have our own relationship with the church. Yes, marriage does play a big role in that, but it's not this, this family priest model that some people put out there. I want you to consider something else about this example of Priscilla and Aquila. Look at Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26. I find this fascinating. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he knew only of John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. Now, Apollos became one of the greatest leaders in the New Testament church. Stellar reputation, and if I were a betting man, I think he wrote the book of Hebrews, okay? Solid, solid guy. But when he started out, he was missing some important doctrine. Who corrected him here, according to Acts chapter 18? Who taught him? It was this husband and wife team, yet which one was mentioned first in the list? Priscilla and Aquila pulled him aside. They took him aside in private. Okay, so that implies then, based on the rules of what we know about ancient narrative that we see played out again and again in the New Testament, that she was more prominent even in the correction of Apollos. And so that proves that women teaching men is not an absolute prohibition in every circumstance. In fact, if you notice, this wasn't in the church setting. They took him aside privately and they taught him. It was not in the context of a church gathering. It was not in a way where authority was involved. It was simply explaining the gospel more accurately. And some people will say, well, I think you're reading into this. For all you know, it was just Aquila who taught Apollos. The text would not read the way it does. It says they took him aside and explained the way to him. Not he took him aside. They They both were doing this together. It was both of them, and she was listed first. And you know what? There are some women in the church that are better gifted at explaining the gospel in the Bible than their husbands. There just are, okay? And so if a married couple tried to explain the gospel more clearly to some dude on the street, and she could explain it better, it's not wrong for her to do a little more of the talking than her husband is. Again, we can't be reading these rules into Scripture that just aren't there. Okay, here we see a couple that worked together, but they were gifted differently, and they didn't stifle that. And yet they still respected the general rules that only men could be pastors and have authority in the church and teach a mixed group. It's not hard to to hold these things together. Well, anyway, getting back to to this, because of their solid work for all these years, Paul ended verse 4 by saying this. 
He says, not only do I think them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Okay? So even though they're Jews, at least Aquila was, but we could assume Priscilla was as well. He's saying all the Gentile churches over in the east, they love these two. They thank them dearly, and Paul thanks them dearly for all the stuff Paul mentioned. Okay? And my guess is the Roman church feels the same way, the predominantly Gentile Roman church, because in verse 5, the first part of it, look what Paul says. He says, greet also the church that meets in their home. So they were also taking care of the believers in the Roman church as well. Now, I want us to understand something about the churches back then. It was a little different than how we have it today because they didn't have church buildings. And so in most cities, the churches met in the homes of believers who had enough space. Now, what we know of the designs of the homes back then, you could fit about 40 to 60 people in the, the one area of the house where they would assemble. And so what this meant was like the Church of Rome, like other big cities, you would have one church, but it would meet in clusters in multiple locations. So if it's a church of 600 people, it's going to be meeting in 10 people's houses every Sunday. That's just how they had to do it. Okay, and so maybe, you know, the plural eldership, it would be, you know, one elder assigned to each house. I don't know exactly how they did it, but they did have to, to separate just because of, of space. And one of those homes belonged to, uh, to Priscilla and Aquila. So anyway... Paul continues with the greetings. In the rest of verse 5, he says, Greet my dear friend Eponidas, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. So here's what we get from this guy. He is the first person to come to Jesus Christ from Asia. In the New Testament, Asia referred to modern-day Turkey, not like what you think of Asia today. So this was the first guy from Turkey to come to the Lord. It means he's not a native Roman. He's an immigrant there. But Paul brought him to the Lord, discipled him, and now this guy's been serving diligently all over the place and is presently serving in Rome. Next, in verse 6, Paul writes this. He says, greet Mary, who has worked very hard for you. Now, we don't know anything about this woman. It's hard to discern much about her. Some will say she's Jewish because it might be the Hebrew name Miriam. But there was a Roman name Maria, which was really common in Rome. So she's probably a native Roman. And the only thing we know about her is what Paul says about her here. He says, quote, she has worked very hard for you. Now, this word work hard, kopiao, means to work to the point of exhaustion. This was a woman who served and served and served to the point of fatigue, probably would take a nap and then serve and serve and serve to the point of fatigue. That is how much she loved her Lord, her church, and the global church. She was always about Christ's mission. And notice, this is said of gasp, a woman, okay? We aren't seeing a passivity here where they sit and watch the men do the ministry from afar as they're simply nursing infants. No, they nurse the infants and then serve the church with distinction because this woman was tired. And that makes sense. She worked to the point of exhaustion and she's not going to be the only one, okay? In verse seven, Paul Continues, he's going to greet a couple more Jews. He says, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, and they were also in Christ before me. Now, there's four things we could say about this couple. First, they're Hebrews like Paul. Second, they've done time for the Lord. They were imprisoned for their faith, just like Paul was. It might have been together. It might have been separate. Who knows? Third, they have a stellar reputation with the apostles. And so then that makes us ask, well, how did the apostles know them? That brings me to the fourth thing about them. Paul says they were in Christ before I was. Okay, And he came to Christ only within like three years 
of the church, you know, being born. And so he's saying more or less, they've, they've been there from the beginning. So if they're known to the apostles, they may have been witnesses of Jesus' earthly ministry. They may have been part of the 500 eyewitnesses that Paul knew about, you know, that he could tell you to go talk to. And likely, they may have been the ones who founded the Roman church. You know, the chances are, Paul's the one who ran them out of Jerusalem. Because when he was persecuting the church, it says he ran everyone out except the apostles. And so maybe he was hunting them, then he becomes a Christian, and now they're like best pals. You know, he really esteems these people. Only the gospel can do something like that. Now, I wish I could just move on, but there is controversy over this because of the Greek phrase, noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles. This could easily be translated as they were noteworthy apostles or noteworthy among the apostles. If that's the case, then it would mean there was a female apostle, Junia. For obvious reasons, feminists want to hold to that tightly. Now, this has been discussed since the times of the church fathers, and a lot of modern scholars do think the phrase is saying that she was an apostle. Some still think it says what our translation says, that she wasn't an apostle, she was just esteemed by them. My thoughts on this are real simple. There is no way in Tartarus that she was one of the apostles like the 12. Just none, okay? Because she's not listed in any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a reason Jesus picked 12, okay, to correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel. And there's no way there'd be 14 and none of the Gospel accounts would tell us. And then the book of Acts wouldn't tell us. No stinking way. So, in light of that fact, there are only two possibilities here. First, It's just like our translation says. They just had good reputations among the apostles. Okay, that's what it probably is, right? But a second possibility is Paul's using the word apostle in a generic way rather than as an office. The New Testament does that sometimes. Sometimes it uses the word apostle, which just means sent one or emissary, in a way that is clearly not talking about an apostle. Sometimes it's used of people who are just doing missionary work. So if the Greek really does mean a noteworthy apostle, then it just means they're noteworthy missionaries. But there's no way they're among the 12, no way that they have this authority of Peter and Paul. Now, I'm sure you guys could guess why people want to say this. Because if you can have an apostle that's a female apostle is bigger than pastor, again, it makes Paul's verse in 1 Timothy go away. That's what these guys want to do. They just want to make it go away. But again, it doesn't work with what we see in the scriptures. Anyway, moving on from those two, going to verse 8, Paul says, Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Now, we don't know much about this chap, but Paul is saying he's his dear friend, which in the Greek means he's my beloved. I really love this guy. He's my pal. He said the same thing about Eponidas. Okay, so that means they were close. In verse 9, he continues, he says, Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. So the first guy, Urbanus, another co-worker. That means he was helping Paul plant churches, okay? Besides Aquila and Priscilla, he's the only other one here mentioned as a co-worker. Now, the second guy, Stachys, is another dear friend, another person that Paul says is beloved, okay, very close to him. In verse 10, Paul writes, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ, okay? Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. That's a fun name to say, but anyhow. So greet Apelles, who's approved in Christ. That's a pretty stellar description. This guy's approved of Christ. What does Paul mean? We don't know. 
The Romans must have known. The point is, he must have done something so remarkable where Paul's like, now that's a man approved by Christ. And people are like, a pelvis, right? And so that's why he could say it that way. Then he greets a group of unnamed believers. He says, those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. These were slaves. They belonged to a household. Now, Aristobulus isn't a Christian because Paul doesn't say to greet him. He says, greet those who belong to him. We know who Aristobulus was. This was the grandson, or the great-grandson, no, the grandson of Herod the Great. The Herod that tried to kill baby Jesus, this was his grandson. And he lived in Rome, and he had slaves. And some of those slaves called on Jesus Christ as Lord, the very person their grandfather tried to kill. This is very, very interesting when you think about that. Now, so you have these slaves who work hard for the church to where Paul mentions them. And then in verse 11, Paul continues. He says, greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Let me just stop right there. One, another Jew. Two, the fact that his name is Herodian means he was born as a slave under, again, the household of Herod. He may have been free at this point. We don't know, but he has a slave background. Next, he says, greet those who belong to the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Okay? And so again, another group of slaves, unnamed, but people who belong to a man named Narcissus. He's not telling us to greet Narcissus, because Narcissus is narcissistic. No, I'm just kidding. It's just his name. But, but Narcissus isn't a Christian, but he owns some Christians. You know, the worst thing you could do is name your kid Narcissus today. I'm sure back then there was no connection, but today. Uh, but anyhow, in the first part of verse 12 He's going to greet two more women, likely twins, because of the way their names are, are similar. He says, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have worked hard in the Lord. Okay, their names mean dainty and delicate. Okay, but R. Kent Hughes says rightly that their service to the Lord was anything but dainty and delicate. It's dynamite, because Paul says they worked hard. Same word, copiaho. These two worked hard to the point of exhaustion. And we'll keep working hard for the church to the point of exhaustion. Now, in the rest of verse 12, he greets another lady. He says, greet my dear friend or beloved, Persis, who has worked very hard in the Lord. Again, he calls this, this woman his dear friend or beloved, which means they had a very, very close friendship. And he also says of her, she worked hard, meaning she worked to the point of exhaustion. But what's interesting is she might have been older because the, the Greek, the tense in the Greek implies that she has worked hard in the Lord, meaning she's not doing it anymore. She completed her hard work where the two twins right now are still working hard. And so the idea would be that she's older, she can't do what she used to do, but Paul's saying still honor her. You know, we're not communists where we only like people when they're useful, okay? No, you honor people all the way to the end, even when they can't do what they, they used to do. Bottom line is, Persis was a very faithful servant for a very long time. Now, in verse 13, Paul is going to greet two more close friends. He says, greet Rufus. I don't recommend naming your kid that either. But he says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Now, we know a little bit about this Rufus. He was the son of Simon of Cyrene, the man that helped Jesus carry the cross to Golgotha. If you look at Mark 15, verse 21, it says this. It says they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus's cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, Matthew, Luke, and John don't mention the name of Simon's sons. Only Mark does. Why? 
because we know Mark was written, Mark wrote his gospel in the city of Rome, and his first audience were the Roman Christians. So it makes sense when he's naming Simon, he's like, oh yeah, that's Rufus's dad. And everybody would be like, oh, Rufus, you know, they would know. And so that's why Mark alone mentions who his sons are, okay? And then Paul also says, I knew her mother, his mother. She's like a mother to me. She takes care of me as if I'm her own son. And so, you know, the interesting thing is, is Cyrene is North African, so Rufus was probably half North African, half Jew. Either way, he's an immigrant in the, in the city of Rome. And I think it's interesting that Paul focuses on his chosenness in the Lord. It says he's elect of the Lord, chosen by God. Maybe Paul's writing that to remind us that all of us who believe have been chosen by God in eternity past unto eternal life, because the scripture says it again and again. Perhaps all these things, approved in the Lord, chosen of the Lord, beloved, refer to all of us and should refer to all of us. But Paul is again applying it to the specific people he knows here. Now, continuing in verse 14, he greets a number of people, but he doesn't say anything about them, which implies that these are the people he doesn't know, but he's heard of them. So he says, greet Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Now, the fact that there are brothers and sisters who are with them implies that these are the people who had house churches. Okay, so greet them and all the people that are meeting in their house to worship the Lord on Sundays. In verse 15, we see the same thing when Paul writes, greet Philologus and Julia, Nerus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Again, we don't know anything about these folks other than the fact that there are saints who are with them, implying that they're gathering in their homes. Okay? So at that point, we have finished 26 greetings. Paul's greetings are done, and he closes with a command. He says, greet one another, so now greet everybody, with a holy kiss. Don't obey that one on me. Just saying. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send you greetings. Look, each culture has a proper way that the people greet each other. Back then, it was with a holy kiss. In the Bible, kisses are rarely erotic. They're only mentioned that way one time in the Song of Solomon, but they're mentioned dozens and dozens of times in just normal greeting ways. You have many examples of men kissing men, women kissing women, and even men and women greeting each other with kisses. It's not like what you're thinking, right? Uh, no Pride Month or nothing like that. It's, it, this was just how they greeted each other. This is like shaking hands for us, okay? It was not sexual in nature. It was normal to their culture. They didn't think anything of it. They didn't get stumbled by it. And there are still cultures today where that's how they greet each other. And again, they don't think anything of it. In our culture, we tend to do handshakes and hugs. So Paul's point is just make sure that you warmingly, warmly and lovingly embrace each other like a family. Because that's what we are. We're family. Imagine what it looks like when a man or a woman withholds a handshake from somebody else. I've seen it before where somebody's hands out and somebody's just like, you know, you're looking at that and you're almost expecting the tumbleweed to blow in between them, you know, and you're wondering what's going to happen. Okay. If a person refuses to return a handshake, that shows like they don't like each other. There's some problems between these two. They are very much divided. And see, but a firm handshake followed by a hug shows just the opposite. So Paul, in this context, is calling on these guys 
to show unity. He says, minister in unity. Take the Lord's Supper in unity, as the previous chapters we're getting at. Greet each other from different houses, as he said, to maintain that unity. And don't you dare withhold the right cultural courtesies of greetings from each other. Greet each other all the time this way. And listen, handshakes, hugs, or back then, holy kisses can only be done in person, right? So again, church is incarnational. It's in the body, right? You're there present, and, and if we greet each other, we will be closer to each other. Now, he finishes by saying this. He says, all the churches of Christ send you greetings. In other words, all the churches that Paul planted and that he could speak for, he's saying, look, I told them I'm coming. They're all sending their love. They're all greeting you. They all care about what's happening in Rome. And so that's one more proof that it is not all about the local church. It is just as much about the universal church. It's about all the churches, okay? And so at the beginning, I said that this text shows us that the mission of the church maintains the unity of the church. And I also said this is part of the all scripture that teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains in righteousness. So now it's my burden, but pleasure, to tell you how this text does all of that. First, I want you to notice all the people that Paul mentions were co-workers, the three people. That means these were people who served the Lord all over the map. They used their gifts not just for the local church, but for the global church. But it wasn't just the global church because now they were in Rome serving the local church. And Paul is relying on these relationships to get this Roman church to now look beyond its own local church matters and see how we can all serve the global church. It's the whole point of this letter, right? So we see that here. So if somebody tries to tell you the priority of any church is to be the local church, they're not reading this closely. They're not reading it closely at all. Faithful churches focus on the local and the global simultaneously, and they do both with great tenacity. That's the first thing we see here with these co-workers. And notice, these people are all united around the mission. So that's why I say the mission of the church maintains the unity of the church. That's what's keeping these guys together is that common mission in Christ. Okay. Now, this list of names really does show us that we're all supposed to be on mission for God. So if we're going back to what it teaches us, it teaches us, look at these people. They're on mission for God. So it teaches you be on mission for God. It, it rebukes you. How does it rebuke you? It rebukes us if we think that we're supposed to focus on something less than the local and global church. It corrects us in being lazy in our service and limiting it where God has not called us to limit it. And it trains us in righteousness by showing us what right looks like when we look at all these people Paul calls out by name in a good way. Second thing I want you to notice about this text. Notice all the women. Notice them. There are 10 women mentioned in this list of 26, and seven of them are commended for being super active in the church. Of the list of men, only five are mentioned as such. This shows you, not that women are better than men, not going there. What this shows you is that women are supposed to play a really big role in the church. We need you guys to use your gifts. Yes, you are supposed to be amazing wives and mothers, and you do serve the church greatest with that, right? But your gifts go beyond that. Paul only names three co-workers here, and one of them, one of them was a woman. Paul mentions only one person who he trusted to deliver this letter to the Romans, and it was a woman. I want to share a quote with you from the early church father, John Chrysostom. 
He wrote at the end of the, the 300s, and look what he wrote about these women. He says, For the women of those days were more spirited than lions, sharing with the apostles their labors for the gospel's sake. In this way, they went traveling with them and also performed all other ministries. That is the witness of the early church. So women of Sovereign Way, please hear me. You are valued more than you know. We need you, okay? We need you, we need you flooding all of our ministries with your Holy Spirit-given gifts. We need you in evangelism and music and discipleship and hospitality, counseling, mercy, baptizing, ushering. You might even say baptizing. In the early church, the deaconesses helped with the baptism of women. So there was a role for that. Again, they saw no issue with that, okay? No issue. Now, recently, we started encouraging women to join the ushers ministry and hand out the Lord's Supper, okay? Because does the Bible say ushers have to be men? I don't even think the Bible talks about ushers, period, okay? And so the thing is, you know, our, our goal is to not be bound by human traditions. That's the only reason somebody would oppose that, okay? There is nothing inherently weird about a woman handing you a cup of grape juice. Like, oh my gosh, it's defiled. No, that's not, that's not how it works, right? And so our goal is to get as many people mobilized for the service of the Lord that the Bible wants them to do, okay? So the point is, if we minister in entirely segregated ways, then are we united for God's mission? We're not. His mission needs both men and women, and the church maintains, and the church mission, and us working together, maintains that church unity. So with that in mind, the text teaches us, because remember, teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains, it teaches us that women are expected to serve in most ways, just not as pastors or those who teach men and have authority. That's it. Everything else they could serve in. It rebukes the idea that women should only passively watch the men do the work of the ministry. Okay? It corrects the lack of service of some women, and it corrects the men who put the obstacles there that prevent them at times. And it trains us in righteousness because, as I said last time, it's through our service to the Lord that we grow in maturity anyway. If you want to grow in maturity, it's got to be through service. Now, what else do we notice about the, the, the names in the text? This is, my most, this is the part that was most interesting to me. What I'm about to share comes from the stellar scholarship of Peter Lampe, who I believe wrote this and did this study in the early 1990s, where what he did is he studied in detail all the names that were used in the city of Rome literally looked up every name written on a wall in the city and all the surviving documents we had and how many times each name appears and then compared that list to the list that Paul gives here and was able to come to some very interesting, you know, he saw some very interesting patterns. Let's put it this way. Okay, so of this list of names, up to five of them were Jewish. The rest were Gentiles. So Gentile majority, Jewish minority. About 14 of the 26 people were not native Romans. They were immigrants. Nearly two-thirds of the names listed here were born as slaves. So think of the diversity here. Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free, men, women, native-born, and immigrants. Sadly, in a lot of American churches, diversity is sometimes seen as a bad thing. Immigrants are seen as a problem. Jews are looked at with suspicion, those Judaizers, right? And women are almost useless in the church because they're not allowed to do the things that the scripture would allow them to do, okay? Usually, 
But, excuse me, but that's not what we see here. What we see in the text is we see people from radically different walks of life. We see, you, you know in the world, natives are usually dumped on, or I mean the natives usually dump on immigrants. Gentiles usually would dump on the Jews. Men would usually dump on women. Okay, the free would dump on the slaves. And yet, in the church of Jesus Christ, in the city of Rome, we see these differences were not weaknesses, but there was unity. They were not dumping on each other. They loved each other, and they were working together. What that demonstrates is that the work of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, it began the last days, right? The end of days that the Bible talks about, where it promised that all kinds of people from all kinds of nations, from all walks of life would be summoned into Israel's promises, and we would all function as one under the Messiah. And that is what we see in this text. The native-born would see the immigrant as his brother. The men would see the women as their sisters. The Jews and Gentiles would see each other as brothers of one body. The free would see the slaves as equal in the eyes of God, even if not in society, but at least in the eyes of God. And they would all leverage their differences for the sake of the Great Commission. That's what they were doing here. Their diversity would be combined into one super powerful unity of effort where Christ is the supreme motive in all that they do. And in fact, probably the most important piece of information here is littered throughout this diverse list of names. Paul describes the people as either being in Christ or in the Lord 10 times. 16 verses, 10 times. That is mentioned more than anything else in this text which tells you that is our fundamental identity in Christ. In Christ is who we are, it's what we are. All these social markers that fallen humanity creates to to divide us, it cannot hinder us from unity when our truest identity is in Christ. Yeah, those distinctions don't disappear, but they all take a back seat to being in Christ. And so it's because of this that I could say with all confidence that the point of the text is the mission that Christ gave the church in him is what maintains the unity of the church. As we're all doing this, I mean, looking at this text, looking at all these different people all united for this end, I don't know how we could come to any other conclusion. That unity presupposed all that diversity, but it was glued together by being in Christ on point for his mission. So this text teaches us All of that. That's the doctrine it teaches us. It rebukes those who think it's okay to treat others with contempt because of these man-made social markers. It corrects racism and undervaluing of women and hatred of immigrants and looking down on the poor. It trains us all to love each other for the sake of Christ and to use our gifts for both the local church and the global mission. It trains us to do all that together in a unity of effort since we who believe in Christ are in Christ. So loved ones, maybe you weren't expecting all that in a text like ours, a list of 26 names, but it's there, all of it. So the question for us is this, will we be the type of church that this text displays for us, that ultimately it's calling us to be, where we are united in Christ despite our social differences, where Jew and Gentile minister hand in hand together without trying to force each other to conform to the other's norms? Where will we be a church where our women and men flood our ministries with their Holy Spirit-given gifts? And then a question for everybody. If you haven't been living on mission for Christ, as we see in this text, working hard for him, sometimes to the point of exhaustion, then my question is, what are you waiting for? 
What are you waiting for? Somebody to tell you to do it? The text already tells you to do it, right? It's time for all of us to embrace Christ's vision for his church. And we see some of that right here in our text this morning. So may we commit to being this kind of church. May we be a church that is made up of biblical people doing the biblical things in the biblical way. And if there's any unbelievers here this morning, let me just put it to you like this. What I've been talking about, what the text has been showing us has been kingdom service. But you're not part of the kingdom of God. You're part of the kingdom of darkness because of your sin. We were all once like you, we who were saved. We're all sinners. We all were liars, people who stole, people who blasphemed God. And because God is a holy and righteous judge, he will not let the guilty go free. And you are guilty. You are not innocent. You will not be able to convince God that on some loophole that, that you um, are innocent. No, you will stand before God who is an all-consuming fire. The books will be opened. Your trillions of sins will be read back to you. And you'll be condemned for all eternity unless... Unless you take the one way, the one way of escape that God gives for you, and it is through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, where God entered his own creation as a man and obeyed the the Bible perfectly, never sinned once. Why? So that he could give us the credit of that perfect life. And then he took into his account all of our imperfect records, all of our sins, he put in his account, he was nailed to the cross, cursed for us to pay our debt. It's like if you owe someone a million dollars and if you don't pay by tomorrow, you're going to go to jail. If somebody else pays it for you, your debt's gone. Jesus paid our debt on the cross and he died for us and then rose on the third day. So if you believe on Jesus, if you turn from your sins, then you will be forgiven of all of your sins because he paid your debt and you will be given his righteousness. And then you will be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and we could use your help and serving our king as we get the gospel to the ends of the earth. So if you have any questions about this, come talk to me or any of the leaders. We'll gladly walk you through this. There's like no magic prayer or anything you have to say. It's just a matter of you receiving Jesus and forsaking your sins. So yeah, come talk to us if you're interested in that. That being said, we're going to close in prayer. And then I'm going to say a little bit about communion. And then we'll have a closing song. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Lord God, we just thank you so much for your word.